Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. We're going to be in a couple of different passages this morning, beginning first in uh, Psalm chapter 33. Psalm 33, and then a little bit later we're going to jump over to the New Testament to Colossians chapter 1. While you're turning to uh, Psalm 33, let me just explain. We're in a new sermon series for the next six weeks. Uh, it's called, That's Just Great. <laughs> Now, usually when you hear it said like that, it, it's ironic, it's sarcastic because things aren't so great. Now, in this case, things really are that great because we're going to be talking about six great truths that apply to the Christian life. And so that's uh, our focus for the next six weeks. After that, we're going to do a 13-week uh, study in the book of Philippians. I'm um, looking forward to that. While you're turning to Psalm 33, let me ask you, what are some advances in technology or science that have really just astounded you, just blown your mind? Ha <laughs> Can I get an amen? Air conditioning. I don't know who said that, but thank you. Um, you know, I, of course, I grew up watching reruns of Star Trek as a little kid. I'm just, I'm kind of a geek that way. But I think about that personal computer that Captain Kirk had on the desk in his quarters thinking, man, that is so cool. Not realizing that just a few decades later, it would be present in just about every household in America. Or your cell phone. Also inspired by Star Trek. You mean the, the, remember the, the flip communicators that they used to use? You know, Kirk Enterprise, that inspired the, uh, the first Motorola flip phones. But think of all the things that your, your smartphone can do now. I mean, it's basically a handheld computer. We've got new cars with amazing features. You know, you, you got the backup cameras and you got the smart cruise control and automatic lane monitoring and satellite radio. And you've got the GPS app with satellite view maps and street view maps and that's pretty cool. Now, we haven't caught up with the Jetsons quite yet, but, uh, you know, that still, that's astounding. We think about all of the uh, advances in, in cancer research and developments in medical science, and it blows our minds to think about things that today are a fairly simple matter when decades ago would be a, a very invasive procedure. Well, you see, church... One question that's been universal to just about every culture and civilization in human history is this. How did we get here? Now, a lot of people attempt to answer that question viewing that through one of two different lenses, either science or religion. Unfortunately, a lot of people have come to the conclusion that those views are in direct opposition to one another, that we must somehow embrace one and reject the other. Well, the truth is, science and faith don't have to be enemies. In fact, they should be viewed as partners, since science often confirms elements of our faith. In fact, according to a, a study that was done several years ago by LifeWay Research, it was determined that 72% of all Americans believe that the universe points to some form of intelligent creator. 72%. Now get this. 
Almost half of non-religious Americans, 46%, believe the same thing, that the universe points to an intelligent creator. Many scientists feel that way, including brilliant minds like Francis Collins, who was the head of the National Human Genome Research Institute for 15 years. And you would be surprised, maybe even shocked, by how many scientists, reputable scientists, who have lent their names to a declaration entitled A Scientific Descent from Darwinism that rejects evolution as the explanation for the origins of humankind. Well over a thousand of these scientists. Now you may be thinking that, that that's interesting, but you know, acknowledging some, some nebulous generic designer really doesn't help us on a spiritual level, does it? We need to dig deeper. We need to get into God's Word. Now, thankfully, we can learn much more about our Creator, God, by exploring the Bible. And that brings us to the big idea behind today's message, which is very simply this, that God created you and He knows you. So, with that thought in mind, Psalm 33. A couple of things we're going to notice about God in Psalm 33 before we jump over to Colossians chapter 1. But the first thing I want you to note from our text this morning is that God is the all-powerful creator. Look at verse 6 of Psalm 33. Read along with me. It says, The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. So a couple of things we see about Creator God in these few verses here. First of all, God's authority over creation. Now as a whole, Psalm 33 is an expression of praise to God as Creator. But when we look at verses 6 through 9 specifically, we see an emphasis on God's power as Creator. Look at verse 6. Now God had created the heavens by His Word. Now, in Scripture, that Hebrew word for heavens, it's shemayim. It's used to, re, to, to refer to three different realms. Okay, so when you see the word heaven in the Old Testament Scriptures, it's got to refer to one of three things. The first heaven is the atmosphere of the earth, you know, the sky. Second heaven is outer space. The third heaven is God's dwelling place. Well, given the context here in Psalm 33, it's fairly obvious it's number two. It's a reference to the cosmos. But look at verse 9. He spoke and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. God spoke the world into existence. Just the way a military commander would, would bark out an order. Man, and, and things get done. In fact, God's spoken command, it reminds us of each day in creation that we read about in Genesis chapter 1. God said, let there be this. God said, let there be that. Let there be light. Let there be water. Let there be vegetation. And some component of the, the created world appeared. So, first of all, we see God's authority over creation. I want you to notice another thing about God. God's administration of creation. In verse 7, the psalmist noted God's control of the forces of nature. Specifically here, the, the waters of the sea. Now, you'll recall in Genesis chapter 1, 
It also refers to the, the separation and the, the division of waters. But here in verse 7, the psalmist is using poetic imagery to describe God's power over the sea. He said, he gathers the water of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. So according to the psalmist, God is creator, administrator, and maintainer of this world. In fact, the fact that God created all things through his word alone that ought to give us a glimpse at the true extent of his power and his creativity. So these verses talk about God's power as creator, as administrator. But I also want to talk about God's authentication as creator. I mean, the proof of his existence. Consider the thoughts and emotions that these verses evoke here. Uh, for example, verse 8 says, let the whole earth fear the Lord. Now, some of your translations may say tremble or something to that effect. The Hebrew word there actually means an attitude of reverent awe in the presence of the almighty, holy God who created the world and everything and everyone in it. So in response to the overwhelming vastness and complexity of creation, the psalmist is calling us in these verses to stand in awe of God. In fact, the, the end of verse 8 says that very thing. You know, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Oh, but you know, some people, they don't want to do that. Some people want to challenge the reality of God's existence. Atheists deny it. Agnostics, they question it. They're unsure. They require proof. Okay, then. Well, let's touch on some of the proofs for the existence of God. I'm going to give you three of the most common arguments, and this is just the most intro introductory glimpse into these. It's by no means a comprehensive explanation. But let me give you three of them, okay? Get ready to write these down, because there's some funny-sounding words. The first one is called the teleological argument. T-E-L-E-O, logical teleological argument. The teleological argument dates all the way back to ancient Greece. And the basic idea behind the teleological argument is that intricate design in nature implies an intelligent designer. Now think about it. You know, the, the, the complexities of the human body that offers a great deal of evidence for the existence of God. I, I love what Herschel Hobbes wrote. He was a well-known Baptist theologian. He once wrote that God has created every part of the body so that it may function properly. Just suppose that he had placed the nose upside down. You could drown in a rainstorm. <laughs> Aren't you glad God knows down to the smallest detail what he's doing? In fact, the psalmist said in Psalm 139, 14 that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, microbiology shows us the, the intricate, irreducible complexity of our cells and the way DNA is programmed into those cells and, and the complexities of nature and of this vast universe shows us God's fingerprint on it. That's why Paul wrote in, in uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 20, for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world. 
being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. So there's the teleological argument. Intricate design suggests a design error. There's also the cosmological argument. Okay, cosmology is really the, the study of origins, specifically the, the origin of the universe. The most common of the cosmological arguments for the existence of God is called the Kalam, K-A-L-A-M. The Kalam argument is actually very, very simple. It goes like this. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe has a cause. What is that cause? It's God, the uncaused cause. He's the cause of the universe. Of course, I'm just barely even scratching the surface of the cosmological arguments. But there's also a third one. There's the moral argument. You know, the idea that a, uh, an absolute standard of objective morality argues God's existence. You know, an absolute standard of morality, let's be honest, not very popular in our postmodern culture that says your own experience determines reality. Your own experience determines truth. Well, that's your truth, dude. That's not my truth. Yet, uh, you know what? there are commonly agreed upon standards of morality that exist today. Absolute standards. I mean, nobody in their right mind would ever say that Nazi Germany's extermination of six million Jews in World War II was morally acceptable. In fact, it's universally agreed upon that it was a grievous wrong and evil. Okay, so where did that absolute objective standard of right and wrong come from that makes us agree on that? We see the existence of a moral law implies a moral law giver. That's the moral argument. And there's other arguments for the existence of God. Those just happen to be three of the most common, and I'm just giving you an introductory glimpse into them. So there are powerful effective arguments for the existence of a creator, but, but what are the implications of us accepting the reality of a creator? Can we know him? Is he actually interested in us? He, he set this vast creation into motion, so now what's his involvement in it, if any? You know, and how much of his power and authority actually apply to me? In, in other words, am I now accountable to a higher power and authority because there is a creator? In fact, that very question is why many atheists embrace the theory of evolution. I mean, not only does it offer them a theory of how life might exist without a creator, but without a creator, well, they're able to think of themselves as the authority. Because let's be honest, authority, yeah, that can be a very unpopular world, a word in today's culture. Because you know, people, they want to be able to make their own choices. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. I mean, we're, we're big on freedom, right? You know, and some people extend that to the point of, I, I want the freedom to do and say everything that I want to do. Well, that's not quite how freedom works, but that's the culture we live in. But what does the Bible say about people that resist God's authority? How does God respond to them? 
Well, you don't have to look any further than verse 10 of Psalm 33. It says, The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. So here in verses 6 through 9, you know, we've seen that God is the all-powerful creator of all things. But as we move to verses 13 through 15, you're going to see something else about him. That he's personally invested in all of his creation, including us. Because, number two, God is the all-knowing caregiver. Look at verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He forms the hearts of them all. He considers all their works. All right, so let's, let's drill down a little bit further and talk about God, our all-knowing caregiver, and what that means. First thing I think you're going to notice here from verses 13 and 14 is that God is carefully watching See, in these verses, we kind of find a shift in thought from sort of a, an up there to a down here perspective. And while verses 6 through 9 identify God as the omnipotent, all-powerful creator, verses 13 through 15 remind us that God is also omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. So if the depiction of God as creator highlighted God's power, well, the focus on God's watching us really points us to his love and his concern, his, his providence for us, his interaction with creation. He's not simply the all-knowing creator, but he's all-caring. He actively watches. Verse 13 says, the Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. Yeah. The God who created the world the God who created the universe cares about us, his creatures. In fact, the psalmist went on in verse 33 to describe that God, he's aware of who we are. He's aware of what we do. He cares. But verse 14 says, he gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. Now, I need to make a, a, a brief theological note about that, about what's going on in verses 13 and 14. Because the notion of God looking down on his creation you know, that can uh, cause some people to misunderstand or misinterpret what's going on. A uh, very popular view of God across the centuries is one known as deism. Okay, deism portrays God as distant, aloof, unconcerned about the world, kind of like a watchmaker or a clockmaker. That God made the world, he wound it up, set it into motion, and then he just walked away from it, took a, a hands-off attitude towards it. So a, a deist can really affirm the existence of God, but he denies God's care and concern for his creation or his interaction with it. Uh, Bette Midler's anti-war song, uh, From a Distance, perfect example. You know, God is watching us, God is watching us, God is watching us from a distance. You know, he's, he's watching how we treat each other, but never interacting. But guess what? That's not the God of the Bible. See, the song only got it half right. Yeah, God, he's watching us, but he's not uninvolved. He is actively watching. And, and, and look what else. God is considering our works. 
verse 15, at least the first part of it, uh, verse 15, it says that he, he forms the hearts of them all. Now, that, that Hebrew word for heart, it's, it's lab in the Hebrew. Lab, in this context, it, it basically means the operational center of your being. It's made up of your mind, will, and emotions. And so the point here, you know, is that the Lord is not only the creator of this vast universe, but he's also the creator of every human being, every human heart. Now, the end of verse 15 says this, that he considers all their works. Well, as the creator of every human heart, he knows the hidden thoughts of all. Nothing can be hidden from him. Now, you know, that idea that God's all-knowing, that he knows everything about us, that might strike fear into the heart of, of some people, but it shouldn't. The fact that he knows us, well, that's really only half of the equation there because he desires for each one of us to know him intimately because creator God is also shepherd God, the one who cares deeply for us. You know, but some people, they just, they just don't believe that about God. Some people want to question God's power in light of the evil in the world, the suffering. You know, other people are going to question his love for the same reason. Well, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, why do evil and suffering exist? You know, maybe God isn't powerful enough to restrain evil. Or maybe God is powerful enough to restrain evil, but he's just not loving enough to care to do something about it. In fact, that very conundrum has actually driven a lot of people to atheism. And so that question, you know, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, then why do evil and suffering exist? It's actually got a relatively simple answer. See, God created us with free will. He's given us the ability to make our own choices in life, to either choose him or to reject him. We have free will. Since we have free will, man can choose, if he so desires, to rebel against God. But because man chose to rebel against God, we now live in a fallen world that has to deal with the effects of sin's curse. But you know what? Sin, yeah, that's something that you and I choose to do, not God. So evil and suffering is the result of our choices, not God's. Yet even in the midst of this world that's, that's dealing with the curse of sin, you know, our all-knowing caregiver in his goodness can and often does use suffering in a redemptive way. And we find examples in Scripture. You know the story of Joseph from, uh, Joseph from uh, Genesis and how his brothers just did some abusive stuff to him, caused him all sorts of trouble. He suffered again and again because of their choices. And yet in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, what did he tell them? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Or when Jesus' disciples encountered a man born blind, John chapter 9, they asked Jesus whether it was the man's sin or his parents' sin that caused the blindness. And Jesus in verse 3 says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, 
This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. And of course, the, the greatest example of redemption through suffering was the crucifixion of Jesus. The Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. So through his suffering, God brought us life and salvation. All right, church, so far we've seen that God is the Father, that God the Father, rather, is the all-powerful creator of all things. We've also seen that God the Father is the all-knowing caregiver. But I want you to turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Okay, Colossians chapter 1, there in the middle of, your, of the New Testament, one of the epistles that Paul wrote from prison when he's writing to the church at Colossae. But Colossians chapter 1. Because in Colossians 1, I want you to notice something about Jesus, about God the Son. And in fact, that's actually the third point in our, in our sermon this morning, is that Jesus is the preeminent Christ. He's the preeminent Christ. Colossians chapter 1, let's read verses 15 through 17 together here. Beginning in verse 15, Paul writes that he, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. You know, this, this chapter, this passage in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 20. It's actually one of three absolutely beautiful Christological hymns that you find in the New Testament. Now, Christology is, is just the theological word for the study of Christ, the work in, in the person of Christ. Uh, very specifically, the, the nature of Jesus Christ as God. Well, these other two passages, you know well, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. But these three verses that we just read together, they teach us three things about Jesus Christ. First of all, that Christ is the semblance of God. Okay, Paul's description of Jesus in this passage, you know, it might perplex some contemporary readers who aren't uh, particular with that particular idiom. I mean, for example, Christ is referred to as the image of the invisible God. You see, as a spiritual being, God is typically invisible and immaterial. He's spirit, right? But God does, from time to time, appear in physical form. Uh, for example, God was one of three visitors that came to see Abraham before the birth of Isaac in Genesis chapter 18. Uh, he appeared to Moses in the form of a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. So, when Paul states here in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he's not saying that Christ is some sort of shadow or a reflection or a projection of God. In fact, some people might interpret that word semblance to mean, you know, having the same form on the outside, but the inward reality being something totally different. Oh, not so in Jesus' case. Because Paul is showing us how Jesus is representative of God himself. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 9, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. 
And the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. He's the ultimate revelation of God in human form. He is God the Son. John 1.1 says about Jesus that in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, the living Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. So Christ is the semblance of God. In verse 15 we also see though that Christ is supreme over creation. Paul also wrote that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Okay, so what does that mean? That's a particularly problematic idiom when you're reading uh, from the Bible. Firstborn of creation. In short, firstborn points to the supremacy or the, the privileged status of Christ as the eternal Son of God. Okay, so don't suffer from the mistaken notion that Paul somehow thought of Jesus as a created being. That's not what he's saying. In fact, that very notion caused a huge heresy in the 4th century church called Arianism. There was this dude named Arius. Who, he believed that Jesus was not co-equal and co-eternal with God. He believed that he was a created being. That, and I quote, there was a time when the Son was not. Oh, but John chapter 1 verse 2 says that he was with God in the beginning. And in John 8, 58, Jesus himself said, before Abraham was born, I am. Now that was a reference to, to both his eternality and his deity. Eternality before Abraham was born. Deity, I am, because the Jews would have understood I am as a reference to the very name of their God. But you know, even today, Arianism exists, most notably among Jehovah's Witnesses, who think that Jesus was a God, but not the God. But you know what? Jesus was not the firstborn of many children. Okay, he, he was not procreated. He was not the spirit brother of Satan, as the Mormons believe. Jesus was not a mere creature like you and I are. Firstborn has nothing to do with birth date. For Paul, Christ was the eternal Son of God. You know, like God the Father, God the Son has priority and supremacy over all of the created world. In fact, that's really what the word firstborn means. It's best, best translated as preeminent one or exalted one, meaning that he is over all of creation. He is co-equal and co-eternal with God. Jesus Christ was not a created being. Here's something else about Jesus, though. Paul tells us that Christ is the sustainer of creation. Look at verse 16. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
you know, it doesn't make a lick of sense to think of Christ as a created being when here in verses 16 and 17, it describes him as the creator and sustainer of the universe. And because he's God, all things are created by him. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, all things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Because he is the preeminent one, not only are all things created by him, all things are created for him. But I want you to look at verse 17. See what it says. By him, all things hold together. So consider this. On a universal scale, he keeps all the stars in place. Keeps all the galaxies spinning correctly. Billions of stars. Over 14 quadrillion solar systems. And cosmic fine-tuning shows us that the physical parameters of the universe are so delicately balanced, so fine-tuned, that even the most infinitesimal of changes would make life as we know it impossible. And so such careful design points to the one who creates, the one who balances, the one who sustains our very existence. He controls gravity. He controls the Earth's magnetic field. He controls solar radiation. He controls the axis of the Earth. He controls the moon's orbit. And all of those things that were they to go askew by just the tiniest fraction would prove catastrophic to life here on earth. Oh, but on a much smaller scale, he also keeps the neutrons, the protons, the electrons, all the other subatomic particles together in their places, interacting correctly. He keeps the various systems of our bodies functioning. For example, have you ever heard of laminin? See, the most noteworthy function of laminins is their ability to bind to each other and to other proteins. And so that makes laminin a very critical means of holding tissues and organs together. In fact, it's been described as the protein equivalent of glue. It holds your very cells together. What did Paul say? By him, all things hold together this vast universe but also the cells within our body now so some of you may be thinking wait, wait a second Eric wait just a minute yes we know that Yahweh God the Father is creator but you're saying Jesus God the Son is creator too yep more importantly than that I'm not just saying it the Apostle Paul is saying it. In fact, the entire Trinity, including God the Spirit, are agents of creation. Think back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. In fact, there's other passages in the Old Testament where God refers to himself in the plural. In fact, uh, Elohim, which is one of the primary names for God in the Old Testament that's used over 2,500 times in the Scripture, it's in the plural form. So yes, the entire Trinity acted as creator. We have one great creator, church. 
So in this passage here in Colossians, you know, Paul is putting Jesus in equal standing with God because Jesus is God. He is God the Son. And since he is God, here's something. Since he's not just the semblance of God on the outside, but the form of God on the inside as well, what are some of the character qualities that we see in Jesus that he has in common with God? We know God is powerful. We also see that in the miracles of Jesus. We know that God is caring and compassionate, as we see when Jesus healed the sick, when he gave sight to the blind, when he fed the multitudes. We know that God is holy and hates sin, as we've seen in Jesus' righteous anger over the desecration of God's temple. We also know that God is loving and just, and we see that in Jesus' death. You know, justice demands payment for our sin. But in his love, Jesus took our sin upon himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, church, Jesus created you Jesus sustained you, but because Jesus loved you, Jesus saves you, believer. And that really brings us full circle back to the big idea that God created you and he knows you. The master designer and and sustainer of this vast universe is also the architect of your life. Let that sink in for a minute. Okay, so in light of what we've discovered about Creator God this morning, what are some ways that we should respond to our Creator in the days approaching? Let me give you three action steps, and then we'll be done. Action step number one, evaluate evaluate. Does your life say that you know God personally or that you just know about him? You need to be certain how to answer that question because your eternity is weighing in the balance. A lot of people know about him up here. They don't know him here. And that 16 inch or so difference between here and here can mean the difference in where they spend eternity. So what does your life say about uh, you personally? Do you know God? Just know about him. Or here's a thought. Because everything these verses say about Jesus as creator and sustainer is true, how should that influence our efforts to follow him? Well, I think the correct response is we acknowledge the preeminence and the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. We tell God, God... I want you to be the boss. You're the one in charge. Make sure that he is truly Lord of your life. So we evaluate. Here's the second thing. We examine. We examine. That means we, we study. We do some research. I'm going to encourage you to broaden your understanding of how the Bible and science are not necessarily at odds over creation. And there's some starting points that you can go with. Uh, books such as Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Creator, is fantastic. 
The Collapse of Evolution by Dr. Scott Hughes, maybe The Book of Beginnings by Dr. Henry Morris. Um, I realize I'm giving you a lot of titles, so if you need to help writing those down, see me afterward. Or familiarize yourself with the ministry of the Creation Research Institute. Or, or watch the film entitled, Is Genesis History? You can stream it for free on YouTube or Freebie. Or study more of those arguments for the existence of God. So we evaluate, we examine, and here's the third one, extend. Extend. Extend a hand of friendship. Invest in somebody. See, all people are created by God. Which means that as his image bearer, all people have intrinsic value. So be intentional this week about spending time with somebody in order to bless that person and to reflect God's care for you to them as well. Tell them about what the created order teaches you about God and use that conversation as an opportunity to point them to Jesus Christ who is creator, savior, and sustainer. Believers, these are all helpful steps, but here's an uncomfortable question. What if you're not a Christ follower? Malcolm Muggeridge in his book called The 20th Century Testimony wrote, the true purpose of our existence in, the, in this world is quite simply to look for God and in looking to find him and having found him to love him, thereby establishing a harmonious relationship with his purposes for his creation. Scripture says you will find him when you seek him with all of your heart. If you truly want to know God, he will make himself known to you. And he will reveal his purposes for you. But you see, his main purpose for creation was to have relationship with you. You exist for his good pleasure, for his glory. He created you for fellowship with him. Oh, but something messed that up, didn't it? Something called sin, our disobedience of God, our rebellion against him. But in response to that, you know what God did? God designed a plan to fix the separation that sin caused between us and him. He would actually leave heaven, become a man, live a perfect life, and then die a sacrificial death in our place to pay the price for our sin and in the process, give us the righteousness of Jesus so that we could be restored to relationship with God. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.